Our scripture reading today comes from Revelations chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 14. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the many voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, sayings with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Recently, Liz and I had the great joy of spending time in the Colorado Rockies. I love the Colorado Rockies. They are a place of restoration and joy for me. And I love climbing the 12,000 feet to the Mohawk Lake region. Imagine with me for a moment the blue sky, perfectly blue, and the aspen groves golden yellow as we walked up to that beautiful space. As the night fell, the sky darkened, and peppered in the sky above were millions and millions of blazing stars. It was an amazing moment for me, and I found my soul filled with joy and wonder. As I thought about that moment, words of a great hymn came to mind, one of my favorites as a kid. And it goes like this, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. It's the beauty and majesty, isn't it, of nature that has a way of stoking within us a sense of awe and wonder. But what if we were to get a real glimpse of the one who created it and the one who's redeeming it? How awesome would that be? How life-changing, life-giving that would be to all of us. And in our text this morning, we are given a glimpse of that. And if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. It's the last book in the New Testament. Now, as a church family, we are in a message series uh, exploring this very remarkable, but yet, let's be very honest, a very difficult book. And let me just say that whether we have read the Bible a lot or just a little, Revelation is a difficult book to understand, and often we are left with more questions than satisfying answers. So before diving in, I'd like to take just a moment to reflect on the importance of this book and its literature and its challenges. Let's remember, first of all, the book of Revelation is not only the capstone of the entire biblical story from creation to consummation, it is written in a literary genre that is very very foreign to us. Now, the form of this letter, and it is a letter written to seven churches, often seems, doesn't that rather bizarre to us? Certainly in the 21st century, but that wasn't the case in the first century when it was written, both in Jewish and Christian circles. Now think for a moment, maybe how different it might be for a 21st century Twitter communication to be to Martin Luther in the 16th century. It would seem rather strange, wouldn't it? or a 21st century rap song to an 18th century Mozart. This is the terrain of distance and culture and time and literature we're dealing with. And at its core, let me just press in, apocalyptic literature, which Revelation is, 
reveals a heavenly vision of some kind. It opens our eyes to the transcendent reality, to, let's just say, to another dimension. So in apocalyptic literature, what we see is the space-time curtain is pulled back, and the language employed by the writer, as we will see through this remarkable book, is highly symbolic. It is filled with all kinds of images. It is not driven or even guided by linearity or any kind of logical progression. And you'll notice as we walk through Revelation, in particular, you will notice the repeating number seven, 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 which is a symbol for perfection, completeness, or goodness. Now, in his excellent book that I recommend to you highly by Paul Spilsbury, it's entitled The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, Paul Spilsbury helps us to navigate and enter into this world and understand it with some level of clarity. He writes, when we read Revelation, we need to keep in mind that we are not reading a straightforward story. In many ways, it is more like a poem with its many figures of speech, its many literary images and metaphors. So we have to make special effort, he writes, to understand what we are reading, that more is going on than appears at the surface. Well, let's keep that in mind. Now, as we explore chapter four and five today, the writer John gives us this awesome vision of God. And this vision is composed of two parts, but it is intricately woven into a literary whole with extraordinary literary delicacy. It builds to a crescendo at the end of chapter five, so watch for that. So keep in mind as we go, chapter four focuses primarily on God as creator, and then chapter five on God as redeemer. And throughout the vision of John, we will experience the awesome display of power and beauty that is arranged around three images, three images, three primary images. And that is, in this sequence, a throne, a scroll, and a lamb. A throne, a scroll, and a lamb. And that will guide our conversation today. Now, each image, the throne, the scroll, and the lamb, will evoke a different kind of primary emotional response. So I want you to feel it as we walk through it. The throne will evoke a sense of awesome wonder. The scroll will evoke a response of despondent weeping. And the lamb will evoke a response of exuberant worship. So you ready? The throne, the scroll, and the lamb. First, the throne. In verses one and two, <clears throat> we read these words as John introduces us to this vision. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had not heard speaking to me like a trumpet, all of a sudden said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and noticed, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, John introduces us to the vision of God using very temporal, spatial, sensory language. In other words, he will say he sees, he hears, and you'll notice the repetition of this powerful little Greek word translated behold twice here. It suggests a sense of surprise and awestruck wonder as this dimension of reality is suddenly revealed to him. He describes a door standing open to the heavens and in the center is a throne and one seated on the throne. And in verses three through seven, 
John describes the stunning beauty, the aesthetics of what he sees. And he focuses our attention on four creatures who are perpetually worshiping God on the throne. And they say something in a threefold way for emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if you read the Old Testament, uh, you know that this is an echoing of a text in the Old Testament. It's the prophet Isaiah. As he encounters the vision of God, we hear the same words, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word holy is important here. And so often when we think of God, we might think, the angelic realm would say, love, love, love is God Almighty, or mercy, mercy, mercy is God Almighty, or compassion, compassion, compassion is God Almighty. And that is all true. But the word chosen by the heavenly creatures is a comprehensive word, holy, holy, holy. It has the idea of completeness, of complete otherness, of purity, and it describes the fullness of God as transcendent and sovereign creator. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis on creator here. And in verses 9 and 11, John describes the divine throne room and the worship of God seated on the throne. And he emphasizes the rapturous praise. That's all we can describe. Focusing on God as the creator of everything. Notice verse 11. He writes, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You notice the emphasis on creation. So here in the heavenly throne room, we hear the distinct echoings of the opening words of the Bible in Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the bedrock foundation of the biblical story that God does exist, and he is the creator of all reality that God is transcendent, that there is much more beyond this material world of space and time. Now, the tension for us in the 21st century is our culture, over and over again, and almost every dimension of it, tells us a different message, doesn't it? That you and I are fundamentally accidents of the universe. We are formed by eons of time and chance, and the universe is just something that happens once in zillions and zillions of years. Charles Taylor, in his insightful book, I highly commend to you, called A Secular Age, describes our growing secularity and its dismissal of any reality beyond this temporal, material world. Now listen carefully. Taylor calls it and describes it in a brilliant phrase, the imminent frame. Now what does Taylor mean by that? He means by this phrase, a view of life and reality that dismisses any life beyond this life. In other words, the here and now is all there is and all there will ever be. Life, your life, my life, reality, is immersed in a self-sufficient natural order, contrasted with any kind of supernatural one. Now, Taylor concludes the significance of this in your life and mine every day. He writes, we no longer live in societies in which the widespread sense can be maintained that faith in God is central to the ordered life we enjoy. This imminent frame is woven into our cultural context. And what is left, truly, is a soul-suffocating, meaning-stealing, imminent frame that is strictly a materialistic view of life. Now, hear me carefully. Sometimes we hear about materialism, right? And the danger of having excessive devotion to stuff. And that's true. That's perilous. But most perilous about materialism is the underlying faith assumption that stuff is all there is. In other words, in your life and mine, that true life, happiness, meaning, joy, 
The deepest longings of your heart and mind are ultimately found in the material stuff of this world rather than an intimate relationship with the one who created the world. This cultural frame not only makes God implausible and weakens the fabric of faith, hear me carefully, it destroys our sense of wonder. One of the greatest challenges to your faith and mine in our current cultural moment is not merely the increase of doubt. It is the loss of wonder. So why is this? Because there is a true, as true of all truths of the universe, that when our wonder is dulled, our worship is watered down. Dulled wonder and watered down worship go hand in hand. This, our evil one, the Satan we describe, Satan himself, knows if he can dull our wonder, he will water down our worship of the one true sovereign creator God who alone is worthy of our worship. With his vision of the heavenly throne room in Revelation 4, John shatters any imminent frame. He opens our awestruck eyes to the brilliance and beauty and power and majesty of the one true sovereign God. And notice now as the vision continues, John sees in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll. This is the second primary image of this vision, a scroll. Look at me at verses 1 and 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, centered in this image of a scroll, we encounter perhaps the most central tension and perhaps the greatest pivotal point in the entire letter of Revelation. So let's press into it. What is this scroll? Why the great tension? And notice, why the microburst of emotion? Now, notice the scroll is written on both sides. This is very intentional by John. It's unusual. This connotes its extensiveness, its completeness, and its importance. The scroll depicts God's sovereign plan of redemption and judgment over the entire sweep of human history, clearly. But also, we must not miss from a human perspective, the scroll captures the deepest questions, gnawing fears, and heart longings of your human experience and mine. Each of us asks foundational questions. Where did we come from? What is our destiny? Is there meaning? How are we to understand our brokenness, human brokenness, and the brokenness and injustice of the world? And will things be made right? Is there a future and hope? Will everything sad stay true? Now, the deepest questions, the greatest mysteries, the most intense longings of your heart and mine, and in John's heart, is sealed up in the scroll. Notice the roller coaster of emotion that John is feeling. He moves from the mountain of awestruck wonder in chapter 4 to despondent despair here in the opening of chapter 5. One translator, I think, does it really well in one translation. He describes John's emotions, I cried and I cried and I cried. 
both intensity and duration. It is as if John, along with the entire universe, is holding its breath as the angelic messenger raises the question of questions. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And you will notice, if you listen carefully, there is pin drop silence of despair. Notice the text says no one, no one in heaven and earth or under the earth can do this. All is lost, all is despair. But then in verse 5, the twilight of hope begins to emerge. John is told specifically, weep no more. And then the vision is unfolded, the Messiah promise in the Old Testament given to King David is declared. That hopeful promise that through David's lineage in 2 Samuel 7, an eternal king would come. He would be the lion of the tribe of Judah who would conquer and set the world right. This Messiah is here. He's worthy now to open the scroll. But notice what surprises us. The Lion of Judah, the conquering king, suddenly becomes, in verse 6, the Lamb who was slain. And this is the third primary image here in chapter 5, but it will continue all the way through the book of Revelation. John sees a lamb standing next to the throne, and notice that this lamb was once slain. It demonstrates his divine authority as he takes the scroll with authority and power. And at that moment, at that moment, the heavenly throne room falls before the lamb in this posture of worship, and the heavenly court massively erupts in praiseful worship to the lamb. Now notice in verses 9 and 10, John records for us this praiseful song sung to the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These praise-filled words, sung to the Lamb, emphasize his messianic mission of redemption, his shedding of his innocent blood to redeem humankind. It is a gospel proclamation with a heavenly audience. Let's remember, one of the greatest tensions of the entire biblical story centers around one burning question. And that question is introduced to us in Genesis. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? In Genesis 22, when Abraham offers up his son Isaac, Isaac says to his father, behold the fire and wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. That interchange frames the biblical story as it unfolds. That God would provide the lamb is the hopeful longing, not only of a covenant nation, but of every longing heart, your heart and my heart. All the way through the Old Testament, the requirement of the shedding of blood for human forgiveness is featured. For example, when the Israelites leave Egypt, God tells them to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost that the angel of death would pass over that house. God's provision of the Passover lamb will be a building theme throughout the redemption story. And the prophet Isaiah looks down the corridor of time and sees the Messiah coming and describes him like what? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. 
And the apostle John introduces Jesus using John the Baptist's words, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Throughout the entire biblical story, there is a heart-burning question. Where's the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And then there's the hopeful expectation that God will provide the messianic lamb. So can you imagine, in a fuller way than John has ever seen it, here in verse 6, that hopeful expectation is now seen. This longing, this hopeful expectation, I think is brilliantly captured in a song that many of us sing during Advent as we anticipate Jesus' second coming. It was written by Charles Wesley. It's entitled, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Here are just a few of the words. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. John's despair early in chapter 5 now becomes joy unbounded. God has provided the long-awaited lamb. God himself has become the lamb. The lamb was worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And notice at this very point, there is this unimaginable explosion All I can say of worship, John cannot describe fully the beauty and intensity and magnitude. And in verses 11 through 14, it's almost as if he trips awkwardly over his words. He repeats over and over again, almost in a sort of grammatically unsound way, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands and countless. John keeps adding the language of countlessness of the heavenly throng, worshiping the lamb and the one on the throne. And he says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and forever. The one true triune God, he alone is to be worthy to worship, be worshiped, not Caesar in Rome or any other human authority, only Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He alone is worthy of our worship, our ultimate allegiance, and our wholehearted devotion. That's the message of John here. John ends the vision, verse 14, in amazing ways. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And as readers, We are transported across the train of time. We feel like we're standing on holy ground. We too want to fall on our feet in worship. We too long to join in with the triumphant church and the heavenly realm. The great cloud of witnesses, amen, amen, amen. See, the book of Revelation opens our eyes to the beauty and glory of the one triune God who has not only created us, but redeemed us. And the book of Revelation speaks of the future. Yes, it does, but its message is much more for the present, for you and me. To worship the triune God and to follow the Lamb. To live our lives each day beholding the worthy Lamb. And the question for us is, are our eyes fixed on the worthy Lamb? As we reflect on our lives today, I'd like us to consider three questions. First, is there a dulling of my wonder? You know, I'll never forget the moment when my children were born. As I held them for the first time in my hands, stroked their heads, looked at their precious little fingers and toes. My whole being was overwhelmed with wonder and awe. The words of the psalmist came to mind. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, a gift from God. There's no way I could put words to it. And you know what I mean if you've experienced it. I knew something was truly wonderfully happening before my eyes, way beyond me, way beyond Liz. With wonder and overwhelming sense of awe, the worship of the one true God flowed through me. 
because worship and wonder go hand in hand. See, whether it is our grandchildren or children, a brilliant sunrise or sunset, a brilliant star-filled night, a breathtaking symphony, there is something about our daily routines and responsibilities and distractions of life that dull our sense of wonder. The late Christian apologist and friend of Christ's community, Robbie Zacharias, spoke a lot about wonder. He wrote many brilliant books. One I love the most is Can Man Live Without God? And he makes this observation. He says, the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only God is big enough to do that. Not only is he big enough, but in Christian terms, he is also near enough. Now, whether you are younger or older, let me ask you, how is your sense of wonder doing these days? Is cynicism, discouragement, COVID-19 fatigue, dulling your sense of wonder? And let me ask you, where are you looking for wonder that your heart so deeply longs for? Are you looking for wonder in all the wrong places? Only a growing vision of the one true God will be truly wonderful. And let me offer a couple of helpful suggestions. First, stay curious. If you want to grow in wonder, stay curious. Stay curious about God's amazing world around you. Stay curious about what God is doing in you and through you and around you. Stay curious in reading and studying God's word. Put aside a distracted life and embrace an attentive life. That is a very different rhythm of priorities. Secondly, slow down. Slow down the pace of your life. Slow down as you interact with others. Be fully present with them. Listen carefully. Slow down in your reading and study of God's word. Allow it to marinate through your heart. See what is there. Reflect deeply on its truths. The Apostle Paul writes, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And as we do this, I am confident a greater sense of wonder will flood your heart and mind and your body. And when your wonder increases, your worship will be enhanced. Your joy will abound. Is there a dulling of wonder in your life? Maybe a simple daily prayer this week is Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, verse 18. It's very simple but profound. And maybe you'll pray it with me this week. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. And I have a good sense that God wants to do that in your life. Secondly, is there a dilution of, of my worship? Perhaps the barrenness of busyness, the many distractions of our information age, our tech-driven world is diluting your worship. And our worship can be diluted when we neglect the importance of our corporate worship gatherings, when we fail to make Sunday a priority. Yes, even with the challenges of a global pandemic, Corporate worship, whether online or in person, is vitally important. I got to experience online worship last week with some friends of mine from Christ Community in Colorado. We, came, we joined online that morning, that Sunday morning, heard a powerful message, and then we shared communion together and prayed. It was a very powerful transformational experience. In corporate worship at Christ Community during this time, we want to give you different options, but corporate wor worship is still very important regardless of the option you choose. Our worship can also be diluted when we fail to see that we are called to worship God in our Monday worlds, friends. Our vocational callings, paid and unpaid, are a primary way we worship God, the way we behold the Lamb. Every part of our Monday world should be speaking, sometimes whispering, sometimes shouting amen to the Lamb on the throne. Is your worship being diluted? Third question that comes to my mind is, is there a distance in my relationship? Encountering John's vision of the heavenly throne room with all its awesomeness, we may be tempted in our sin and brokenness and shame to shrink back from God. Yet because of what Jesus the Lamb has done for us on the cross, the good news of the gospel, the writer of Hebrews invites us to draw near to the throne 
of grace. He writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So Jesus the Lamb invites you to come to him, to find forgiveness and new life in him, to know him and be known by him, to take his yoke of apprenticeship, to learn from him, and the promise he will give you is you will find rest in him. In Jesus, you will find the life you long for. Draw near to the Lamb. Love the Lamb. Follow the Lamb. Behold the worthy Lamb. And with the heavenly multitudes, join with me in awesome wonder and praise, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Amen.